Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Amen. Good morning, church. Today's reading is taken from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18, verses 16 to 39. At the end of the reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, thanks be to God. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon, Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the, all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, 
one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two sears of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Antipi, for that beautiful long reading. Um, okay. Hi, everyone. Thanks. <laughs> In case you watch me with us for the first time, um, my name is Tommy Olarewaju. I'm one of the guys that I'm part of the preaching team, basically, right? So I'm just using this opportunity to welcome you. And if this has happened before, once again, hi. Um, let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that even as I deliver your word, we ask, oh God, that you will come. You will stir our hearts. You stir our hearts to righteous thoughts. You stir our hearts to righteous words. Stir our hearts to righteous deeds, oh God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight to bless us in the name of Jesus. In Jesus' mighty name we've prayed. Amen. All right. Um, do you remember ever being in a very, very heated argument, like a very terrible argument? Again, not necessarily with any, somebody, somebody you don't like, but maybe a friend, but the argument got really, really heated. I'm not talking about the kind of arguments we have in city church, you know, like when people are talking and everything is just so nice and godly, and then you probably end your conversation with, you know, let's just agree to disagree. You know, it's just all nice. Or it gets to a point, you're arguing and see, city church member tells you, see, I hear what you're saying. I value your opinion, you know, like, because in city church, we value people. Uh, but, but you are wrong, you know. I'm looking at the time, you are so happy to be wrong. It's like, it's okay, it's, it's totally fine. Again, I'm not talking about those kinds of arguments. I'm talking about arguments where you are going for each other's heads. Like, probably when guys are arguing about football, right? Turns out girls do it, so and you guys are very energetic as well. I used to have those kind of arguments a lot in university. It could last for about two or three hours. Those kind of arguments that, by the third hour, you can't even remember what you're arguing about. <laughs> Right? And one of the things that was particular about the kind of arguments we used to have was this. We didn't just want to win the argument, we wanted to win the person. We didn't just want to ridicule the person's argument, we want to ridicule the person as well. You have to drag them as you are dragging the argument. 
And one way you know you are beginning to win the argument is this. The person's energy in responding to you begins to reduce. Now, you, it's normal that after two or three hours, maybe the person is getting tired. But you know it's not because they are tired. It's because they are losing the argument. So you too, you will raise your voice. You want to dominate the argument. So you continue talking, continue talking. And as you are winning the argument, you get to a particular point, you get this killer challenge in your mind, this killer argument that, no, if I can give this one, it cannot escape. And so you give it, and the person tries to, you know, corner his mind. Say, no, 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 you have not answered my question. And the person is unable to answer, you know, no, I've won this argument. And so you then probably go for the kill this time. You then rehearse everything you say for about two hours. You say it again because you just want to show him that you are the boss. One of the other things that happen when we are arguing this way is this. Um, in our subconscious, we all know that victory that is not made public is not sweet enough, right? So one thing that will happen is by the time you're arguing, when you know you're beginning to win, you go and call other people to come and hear as you beat the person. So you say, guy, 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 come and hear what this guy is saying. But the truth is you only to come and hear what you're saying as you actually defeat them. And that is what is actually happening in First Kings chapter 18. God and Baal has been engaging in a very heated argument. And God has been winning, and Baal has been receding. But God gets to a point where he says, you know what? I'm going to call the all of Israel to come and witness as I deal with you this last time. And so God, what happens on Mount Carmel is God comes, and then he does this. He issues out a challenge that he knows that Baal will be unable to answer. But the challenge is special because God is also supposed to respond to that challenge. And so in 1 Kings 18, we see that God is challenging, God is challenging Baal, but he's also challenging himself. But there's one more person that God is actually challenging in 1 Kings chapter 18. The people were also challenged. Because Elijah told them, he said, if Baal is God, worship him. If Yahweh is God, worship him. And they were supposed to give a particular answer to that. So 1 Kings 18 is actually about a challenge that has gone forth and the responses of different people to that particular challenge. 1 Kings chapter 18 is about the one who is able to rise up, the one who is able to answer that challenge. And that's why we titled this sermon. The God that answers by fire. The God that answers by fire. And we are examining this under three headings. First point, our answer. Second point, our idol's answer. And the third point, our God's answer. So again, our answer, our idol's answer, and our God's answer. So our answer quickly. So in verse 21, Elijah comes to the people. And Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, if Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. What Elijah is doing here is saying, there are two opinions that some people have brought before you for a while now. There are two cases that people have been presenting to you. God has been presenting his case. Baal has been presenting his case. And what you are supposed to do is to pick the one you are supposed to follow. Pick the one that you are going to choose to worship. So it's only right that we actually examine the case. That these people have brought before that, that these people have brought before the people of Israel. What case did God bring? What case did Yahweh bring? We find in 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah speaking as a prophet of God said, There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. So God's case is that he's bringing judgment. God's case is that he's bringing a famine. And this doesn't look like a very good case, if you ask me. Because again, if the point is for us to follow the God that loves us, if the point is for us to follow the God that is for us, the God that is not against us, Baal seems to have a better case. Because at least Baal is not doing anything. Baal is not throwing any tantrum because people are not obeying him. But Yahweh is. It felt as if Yahweh's case was that he was bringing trouble, and Ahab would have agreed with this. 
Because in verse 17, when he, when Ahab saw Elijah, the Bible says, when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? And note carefully that Ahab knew that Elijah didn't come to declare any word by his own power. He knew that Elijah was speaking on behalf of God. So indirectly, what Ahab was saying is this, that is that you, Yahweh, you troubler of Israel? Elijah looked, I mean, Ahab looked at the case that God had presented and he said, this is not a good case. But again, we find that Elijah doesn't agree. Elijah said, it's not high or the person that has sent me that is troubling Israel. It is you. Just as, prof, just as Elijah was the prophet of the Most High God, Ahab was a king that was representing Baal as well. So Elijah said, no, it is Baal that has a bad case. God doesn't have a bad case. It is Baal that has a bad case. And so again, what exactly is Elijah seeing that is making him make that kind of a conclusion? That no, God, I mean, this is a case of famine. I can see it, but it's a really, really good case. And the key is in what we think Baal is. I know in church, when we think about Baal, we always think about the idols in our hearts and stuff like that. That's great. But who was Baal even in those days? Timothy Keller talked about how Baal was, um, Baal was not just one god. Baal was actually a community of gods. It was like a generic name. So you could say you have the, the same way you say you have the god of rainfall, you could say you have the Baal of rainfall. So you have the Baal of fertility. You have the Baal of oil and grapes. The Baal of the harvest. The Baal that sent fire from heaven. It was actually a Baal like that. And then there was the Baal that was rumored to be able to raise the dead. And whatever the Baal is a god of, that is actually what they are, that is actually what they are offering to the people. So if you are worshipping the Baal of rainfall, you are expecting rain to come from that particular Baal. And but God comes in 1 Kings 17 verse 1 and says, There shall be no rain until I say so. You have heard that Baal is the one that has the power to withhold and to give rain. But I am going to hold this rain and Baal will be unable to give it. Showing that the power to withhold and to give the rain does not rely with Baal. It actually lies with me. Baal is not the god of the rainfall. I am Yahweh. I am the god of the rainfall. And this was the case that God was presenting. That The case that God was presenting was not as much that he was willing to just punish the people. It was that he was willing to show the worthlessness and the powerlessness of the idols that these people are worshipping. And that is what 1 Kings 17 is really about. If you continue the story, you find that in a famine where there was a battle of the harvest, guess who was actually who was preserving his people through bread and through bread and water? Yahweh was doing that. There was a battle of oil and grace. Guess who was, who was supplying limitless supply of oil? It was Yahweh. Guess at the point again, there was a battle that was rumored to be able to raise the dead. In 1 Kings 17, who was raising the dead? God was. The writers of 1 Kings are trying to show us that God is able to do what Baal is unable to do. The case that God is presenting for the people is this, that I am Yahweh and I am revealing that the idols you are worshipping are actually nothing. And upon Mount Camel, Elijah asked the people, if Yahweh is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. And the Bible says they remained silent. They were confused. They are totally missed the point of the famine. They are totally missed the case that God was actually presenting to them. Because based on all what I've been saying, if the point was for Yahweh to present a case, if the point was, was trying to get them to his side, was trying to make their hearts turn back to him, then the case of the famine is actually not a case of God's judgment. It's a case of God relentlessly pursuing his people, even in the famine. And the challenge to us is this. When things are not going our way, when it seems that God is withholding certain things from us, how do you react? How do you see the troubles that God brings your way? Do you simply see it as judgment? Or do you see that God is trying to judge 
the idols that you serve that you are expecting satisfaction, wholeness, and completeness from. And I will confess that after time, when I am going through certain sufferings, when I am going through certain pains, I don't understand what God is trying to do with them. So I'm not going to presume to have the answer to suffering, but the text is showing us here today that it is possible that God is sending suffering our way because he wants to reveal that he himself is the God of all things. And so what was happening to the children of Israel as well, but the Bible said they remained silent. They missed it. They were silent. It was describing a state of spiritual insensitivity because they wrongly misinterpreted the judgment of God. And many times we are also serving other idols and God keeps chasing after us. God keeps bringing down all the others and revealing that he's God, but we keep on running. Probably serving the ball of romance. And then you try so hard, you want the person to give certain things to you. But God in his graciousness comes and kicks down that idol and reveals that he is the one that can satisfy you. So you can turn your heart back to him. But no, you keep on running. You cannot turn your heart back to God. You run to probably the ball of work. And then you are working so hard, you are trying so hard. If my spouse cannot give me what I deserve, at least if I work, they will pay me. But God keeps on pursuing us again at that point and kiss off that particular altar again in probably withholding a particular promotion from you. Maybe withholding a particular contract you've been seeking for. Again, we don't think that is God. We think it's just judgment. And we keep on running again. And that's how we keep on running to probably the ball of pleasing people, the ball of the church. Because church people are nice. If, if my spouse cannot like me, if my employer cannot like me, church people are bound to like me. Then you come to church and it's disappoint you because we are bad people here too. But we also keep on running. So you keep on running to the ball of Netflix, you run to the ball of Instagram, you run to the ball of alcohol, to the ball of drugs, and you run and run until you get to a point where you are tired and they bring the gospel before you. There's so much indifference and tiredness in your heart, you cannot even respond anymore. That was in the book of first in the book of James chapter one, from verse two. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish his work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If the Bible is telling us to let perseverance finish his work in us, it's because it's possible for you to not let perseverance finish his work in you. You can misinterpret the judgment of God. Isn't it funny that when judgment comes, it most of the time comes in form of God withholding certain things from us. James is saying that God is withholding certain things from you. God is giving you some kinds of lack so you can get to a point where you're not lacking anything. So you might be complete and perfect, lacking nothing. Interpret your suffering rightly. Interpret your judgment rightly. Do not let the world interpret judgment to you. Do not let your own sinful heart interpret God's judgment to you. Do not let the social media interpret suffering to you. Let the word of God do that. So when judgment comes, the world might say that it seems that God doesn't like you, but you remember God's word. In 1 John 3 verse 1, that behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto me, that I should be called the child of God, and so I am. When the world comes to tell us that this judgment means God is out to get you, you remember the word of God that God is not out to get me. God is actually for me because if the Lord be for me, who can be against me? Interpret your judgment rightly. The Bible says concerning Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 verse 17. And a voice said from heaven, this is God. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. But the scripture also says in Hebrews chapter 5, from verse 8 to 9. Sorry, please excuse me. Hebrews 5, 
8 to 9. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. If the Son of God, if the author and finisher of our faith, learned obedience by the things he suffered, what makes us think we can learn any other way? If Jesus himself was made perfect by the things that he suffered, and the goal is to be conformed to the image of the Son, how do we think God is going to make that happen? We need to see that suffering, when it's coming from the hands of God, it cannot be for our downfall. It is for us. For God, the Bible says in Romans 8, that God makes all things, the good and the bad, the um, suffering, the victories and the defeats, God makes all things work together for the good of them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. If your sovereign Lord is in charge of suffering, then you can rest. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, the Bible says that if we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. What needs to happen most of the time is this, that God needs to perform a surgery on our hearts to remove our sinful tendencies, to remove our allegiances to idols, to remove our allegiances to the devil. And so God performed this surgery. But again, because the surgeon is our father, we know that when he sends judgment your way, it is actually still for your own good. Imagine you're on the operation table and they're about to perform a surgery on you. And then as they're about to gas you up, you find out that the person holding this scalpel is your enemy. Or maybe your employer that you've been offending for a while. Or maybe your employee that you've been maltreating or your maid. You know you're not going to get out of that. But the good news is that in this surgery, God is the one performing the surgery. God is for us. But God has also been performing that surgery on the children of Israel for a while. But they also missed it. It seemed like they didn't respond to the suffering. So God says, I'm going to do something so dramatic. I'm going to do something so big that will actually shock them back to life. It's like the oppression didn't work on these people. I'm going to get what we call them defibrillator. You know what defibrillator is? So in case you don't know, you know when you watch movies and the person is about to die, there's this machine, they rub it and one, two, three, boom. You know, yeah. Right, good. So God says, I'm going to get my defibrillator to actually shock these people back to life. These people are dead inside. They must have missed it. And maybe you are like that as well. You are probably dead inside. You feel death inside of yourself. You no longer respond to God the way you used to respond. Your story has become that I had a better yesterday. And maybe not because of suffering. Maybe because of time. What needs to happen is that God needs to shock our spiritual system back to life. It's what we call revival. God needs to revive us. The story of Mount Carmel is the story of God's use of his divine defibrillator to shock his people back to spiritual vitality. That same God that was available upon Mount Carmel is available in City Church here today. He is able to shock your life back to vitality. And I pray for us, for those of us, that your story has become 10 years ago, I used to fast and pray, but now I don't do anything again. 10 years ago, I used to evangelize. 10 years ago, my life had meaning, but now it doesn't have anymore. I pray for you in the name of Jesus, that God will do something so dramatic in your life, that will shock you back to life in the name of Jesus. What we find out, that Baal was also supposed to respond. So that leads to our second point, our idol's answer. Our idol's answer. Back to the analogy of the argument that I gave. One thing that actually happened is this. If I know that you are smarter than I am, or you know a particular thing more than I do, I'm not going to argue with you. Because, um, in fact, even if I start the argument by mistake, and at three minutes in, I find out that you know this thing better, I will begin to, you know, I'll come down, I'll start saying stuff like, oh, you, you seem to have a point, yeah, yeah. Because the point of getting to an argument is to what? Is to win. 
How would you guys are like, you know you're not going to win. I mean, for most of us, let us not lie, it's the truth, right? We say we want to get knowledge, but it's only like, all right. So, but then there's this question we usually ask when we're reading the book of, when we're reading First Kings 18. Have you ever asked yourself this? We all know that Baal didn't respond. Baal remained silent. Um, why did the prophets of Baal accept the challenge? I mean, what were they thinking? I mean, there were different options. If I mean, if I was like the leader of the prophets of Baal, I'll just kill Elijah. Like, we are 450 for crying out loud. We don't need to respond. We don't owe anybody any explanation. And if a Nigerian, if that guy was Nigerian, would say, you say what we jali say, say you should resist the urge to do what? To Shalai, what are you explaining? Kill the guy. But that wasn't what he did. Instead, they accepted the challenge. Why? The only explanation is they expected that if they prayed to Baal, Baal was going to send the fire. Right? They expected that they actually prayed. Now, no, the fire is going to come. Well, no, don't worry. We did. Again, Elijah had precedence. Elijah, had, there was a point when, in um, with the story of Israel, that God was leading the people through the wilderness, and then there was fire in the sky. So Elijah could feel like, oh, okay, yeah, God can send it again. I have precedence. But these guys, what precedence did they have? Again, let's look, like, if you check the book, um, 1 Kings, chapter 18, verse 28. So after they've tried praying at a particular point, they've, they've cried to, uh, to Baal, and Baal didn't respond. Elijah was laughing at them, and they decided to do something. So this is where we get to 28. Um, 28. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until the blood flowed. This is what was happening. They have danced. Baal didn't respond. They said, oh, no, if we slash ourselves, like the normal thing we should do, Baal will respond. Why? Because Baal had responded to them in the past. And then this is something we all know. The Bible is teaching something that we all know as Nigerians or Africans. There is power on the other side. Village people exist. And in case you are of the modern mindset and you're like, you know, you know what, like, I'm not really sure. There was a time. God sent Moses to go and um, deliver the children of Israel from the Egyptians. And God gave him certain signs to perform. Bible said that he threw his own stick down and he turned to snake. The prophets of um, the gods of Egypt threw their own stick to down. He turned to snake as well. He turned the water, the water to blood. They came and they did this. Not only you that have this power, we, got, we have it too. And this is, what, this is what the Bible is telling us at this point. The greatest appeal of the devil, the greatest appeal of our idols is actually that they deliver. Now, in church, we tend to say that, oh, idols over-promise and they under-deliver. But think about it. There's some form of delivery going on. Yeah. They will actually give you something. There is pleasure in sin. We're not saying there's no, there is pleasure there. The appeal is that they will actually deliver some form of pleasure. And the lies that the devil tells us is this, that they are with, the lies that the idols tell us is that they are willing to give us in the immediate what God has seemed to push into your future. That we need to say, oh, God is slow. God is not going to respond on time. But we are going to answer you almost immediately. I remember one time when I was in university, one of my friends, um, his phone got stolen. And then he was angry and he was just cursing everybody. He was just really angry. And he got to a point, I won't forget this day. Because funny enough, I never really thought about it until that point. He said, see, if you are the one that stole my phone, I will not commit to the answer of God. God will be slow. He won't deal with your matter on time. I will commit your, I will commit your story to the answer of God. He will answer you immediately. And he was reflecting a particular sentiment that God seems to be slow most of the time, but idols will respond almost immediately. Most of the time, we want our satisfactions now. We want God to answer our demands now. Idols convince us that God is actually not working on your behalf, but the truth is God is always working. God is always working for your own good. So we find again, that, and maybe you're here, you're going through some form of delay. 
seems like God has withheld certain things from you, and then you know the cliche answers that Christians give. Very, very cliche. They say, um, you know, God, no, not even delays, they do not deny. You know, they say, um, God will always answer prayers, you know. Uh, you either say yes, no, or wait. And so God is telling you to wait. And if I'm suffering, this does, it's, it's, it's a very silly, silly thing to say to you. I mean, like, what you, right? But again, if we really think about it, even though it doesn't seem to make sense, but let's just examine it a little bit. If our lives are actually a beautiful musical orchestra, then it makes sense that the conductor will do things in such a way that no instrument will come before its time. No instrument will come after its time. All the instruments, all the sound, all the pacing will come at the right time where they're supposed to come. That means that every delay in your life is being orchestrated by God in such a way that by the time he responds, it's going to be a bang, an answer to your own prayers. Such that when God, when people look back at your life, when people look at the end of it, they'll say, that is a beautiful music. Yes. What idols offer us is this, that they are willing to answer you immediately. So their delivery is like a beat. So they just keep on... This is not music. This is noise. And again, we will look back at the end of our life for those of us that have committed our life to sin, committed our life to other, they will say your life is nothing but a big noise. And so, and so, and so where we need them the most, idols actually deliver, like I said. Where we need them the most, where we need them to actually come through for us, get to your point. Silence. They will not respond. And maybe you are here at this point. The idols have delivered to you to a point where there is now silence in your life. And maybe we're in, just the same way we're in Lagos, the idols that have delivered to a point where there is now silence in Lagos. There is silence in Nigeria. We have put our faith in the bar of government and it has delivered only to the point where it actually stopped. We have put our faith, for example, our families, our parents, put their faith in the bar of community. Remember when they were about to do something, they would say, what will people say? And that idol keeps on delivering, delivering until it actually stops again. But we, we've now come, we are the intellectuals. It's the rise of the modern self. We know what we are doing. Self-esteem, let's boost ourselves. We are the ones that can do whatever we set our minds to do. But that also keeps on delivering until it gets to a point where it is going to stop. And for many of us, there is silence in our lives. There's probably silence in our marriages. There's silence in this city. What we need is that the God that answers by fire should come through and put an end to the silence that is in our lives. What we need is that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel will send a revival in our lives in this city and in this nation. And that's what we lead to the third point. Our God's answer. Our God's answer. Elijah prays in um, verse 36. At, at the time of the sacrifice, okay, step forward and pray. He said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done these things at your command. Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, no, Israel. Now, if you are, like, so if, if you don't know, um, Jacob was a man that was actually also named Israel, but note carefully that what the people would have heard was God of Abraham, Isaac, Israel. At the corner of their hearts, they would be assuming, okay, it seems like Elijah is actually saying that God is not just the God of Abraham. He's not just the God of Isaac. He's also your God. Elijah was not just pointing to Israel, the man. He was pointing to Israel, the nation. He was declaring over their lives that the God that turned Abraham's heart back to him, the God that turned Isaac's heart back to him, is also here now and is actually turning your own heart back to him. 
Elijah was declaring over the people. What Elijah was doing was he was tying their present to a glamorous history that they had. That God had been intervening in your life all along. Have you forgotten? Elijah is pinpointing a, a very, very key ingredient in revivals. Most of the time, what we need to what needs to happen to us is that we need to be reminded of where we are coming from. Most of us have disengaged from our past. We disengaged from divine intervention of God in Nigeria. Times of revival in this country. We disengaged from times of revival even around us in the world. This past week I was reading about revivals and Timothy Keller talked about how in times of revival, nominal Christians, Christians that are just Christians by name, will begin to give their lives to Christ on a very, very large scale. Non-Christians that have kicked against God for so long will begin to commit their lives to him. Even true Christians that have experienced droughts, that have experienced famine, will begin to get revived again. He talked about how revivals are times of the intensification of the normal means of the spirit. Even in the church, things will begin to happen. And we read, we've also known about this. That's happened even in Nigeria. In the 1930s, revivals happened with Joseph Ayo Babalola. I don't know if you've ever read about this. But what the history books tell us is that there were certain times where people, eyes were, op- eyes were opening. The deaf were hearing. The lame people were walking. It got to a particular point. People who had committed their lives to witchcraft and idol worship were publicly coming out and they were renouncing their ways. Things that didn't make sense began to happen. And a lot of the time, one of the reasons why we don't think about revival enough is this. We don't like it when things don't make sense to us. We want things to actually make sense. But Martin Lloyd-Jones said something about revival. He gave a definition. He said, a revival is a miracle. Not only can men not produce revivals, they cannot even explain it. And that, again, is more important. I will lay this down as, a part, as part of a definition. If you can explain what is happening in a church, apart from the sovereign act of God, it is not a revival. You see, what that happened is this. The fathers looked at their life. They looked at the darkness in their own lives. They looked at the darkness in their city. They looked at the darkness in their nation, and they said the only thing that can respond to this darkness is that it doesn't make sense moments from God. I don't know about you, but in my own dark, when I see the silence in my own life, when I see the darkness in my life, when I see darkness around me, I desire, I'm tired of it makes sense arguments. I'm tired of it makes sense experiences. I need some it doesn't make sense moments in my own life. And the history of Christianity is actually an history of it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that something should come out of nothing, but we believe it still. It doesn't make sense that a virgin should get pregnant without having any sexual intercourse to any other person, but we believe it still. It doesn't make sense that a God should become a man, but we believe it still. It doesn't make sense that a man should rise from the dead and physically, with his body, enter into heaven. But we believe it still. The question then is this. God is going to send the revival. God is going to send the fire down. We already passed it. God sends the fire. The question is, are we ready for it? Is our own altar, has our altar been made? In verse 30 we read, then Elijah said to the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been turned down. Is your own altar being repaired? Are you ready for revival? And I'm not just talking about your altar. I'm talking about platforms, your area, your sphere of influence, where God has actually placed you. Because guess what? Your platform, your sphere of influence will only be a bunch of crumbled stones until you, until you dedicate it to God as an altar for him to pour his fire upon. Your job, your family will only be a bunch of crumbled stones until you fix it and you say, God, here is my life. Pour your fire upon this altar of my job. Pour your fire upon this altar of my classroom. Let things that don't make sense begin to happen. I am tired of being ineffective. 
even in city church, city church will be a bunch of crumbled stones unless we all carry our services and our gifts and we say, God, here they are. This is an altar. Pour your fire upon them. Have you repaired your altar? Because whether we like it or not, God is going to send a revival. The question is whether we are ready for it. And one of the things that happen during revivals is this, that it seems that God, God usually brings judgment to the church. God will judge the church by using the secular world. And if you read the book of Judges, that's what is happening. First Samuel, second Samuel, second Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah. God has the history of actually judging his people. When he's about to bring revival, God has an history of actually bringing judgment because he knows revival and hope is around the corner. And we've experienced this even in Nigeria. For all our talk on feminism and their extremes, lately, women have been able to call out and talk about how people have actually sexually assaulted them, including pastors. I just did a Google search recently, and I was shocked last year. First Google page, about 10 different cases, no repetition. So it seemed like God is judging the church using the secular world, but most of the time we miss it because when God is actually judging the church, again, he's about to revive the church. Revival, most of the time, is like pregnancy contractions. And so you are having it. The contraction is not the baby. The judgment is not the revival, but then it has to come before the revival actually comes. Because when God eventually causes that baby to be born, it will be nothing short of joy. Peace. I remember one particular time, a few years ago, a particular secular um, person was um, talking about Titan. We remember the story. He started talking about Titan so much. And then he was judging the church, a secular person judging the church. And again, most of the time, what we don't notice is this, that the church is actually moving forward. If you listen to these so-called prosperity gospel preachers today, the things they are saying seem to be changing. They are sometimes giving a more balanced view on money. They are giving a more balanced view on even what prosperity should be because, again, God wants us to prosper. They just teach you wrongly, all right? They are beginning to move. And what, we, what can happen to us is this, that we can see the judgment that God is bringing to the church and we can mourn and complain and just end there. That is bad. We can also look at that and be so glad that that pastor you didn't like has been disgraced. That is also bad. What we are supposed to do is to partner with God in this way he's bringing revival to the church. What we are supposed to do is throw off our clothes of self-righteousness, throw off our clothes of arrogance, throw off our clothes of false knowledge and get into the pit where God is actually doing the dirty work and we can join him in place of prayer, in place of expectation. God is inviting us to revival. What is God is going to send his revival? The question again, like I said, is are we ready? In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, the Bible says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Times, plural, of refreshing may come from the Lord. God is going to send multiple revivals. And he has been sending them. We might not be able to, be able to plan for a revival, but we sure can actually prepare for them. God is the one that actually sends revival. The plan, the timing is all in his hands. But we can actually prepare for the revivals. And so again, how do we prepare for revivals? I've said one, we actually set our altars rightly. But secondly, we pray. I actually believe that we pray less because we expect less. The reason why you are so prayerless is because everything on your spiritual bucket list can be achieved by your own strength. That's the reason why you don't pray. Our dreams are too small. Our dreams are too little. 
if our dream for revival is actually big enough, if our dream for revival is, for example, to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews the city of Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally, we cannot be arrogant enough not to be prayerful. We cannot be arrogant enough not to actually dig in in place of prayer and, and expect that God is going to respond. Somebody said most Christians never have the luxury of hearing God say fear not because they never attempt anything great enough to merit that command. We are not expecting anything. Again, you read Elijah in, in, in verse 33 to 35. He arranged the woods. Again, this is the point where he was about to um, pray. He arranged the woods. He cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it the third time. The water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. I know many of us have asked the question, why is he pouring water on, on the bull? Three times. Why? What was going on in Elijah's mind? Is this thing we've been discussing. Elijah decided that, see, if we poured water on this, on this bull right now, the only way fire is going to come, cannot come from below, that's come from above. Elijah decided that, see, I'm going to cancel any option for you, God, to do anything that people can attribute to my own power. If you are going to do anything, let it be something that only you can do. That is something that only you can achieve. The church's relevance is in the fact that we are willing to offer the things. We are able to offer the things that the government cannot offer. We are able to offer the things that culture cannot offer. We are able to offer the things that families, our parents cannot even offer unto us. That is why the church is relevant. And I think our greatest problem is that we is contentment. We are too content. We are far too easily pleased. Small things happen. We are already screaming all about I don't know about you, but I'm tired of people meeting me and they cannot see the God in me. Oh, he's just, he's just, just a great guy. No, I, he's a Christian. That's what I want him to say. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it so happened. The Bible was describing what was happening in Corinthian church. He said, when an unbeliever enters into their midst, because everybody is prophesying, because everybody is manifesting the gifts of the Spirit, it will get to a point the unbeliever will be convicted in his heart. He will fall on his face and he will declare that Yahweh is indeed among you. If God did it before, he can do it again. I want him to do it again in my life. I want to do it again in city church. It's the same God that is upon Mount Camel. It's the same God that we still send fire and people will declare in city church that Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. In the name of Jesus. I'm running up now. What is the assurance that this is what is going to happen? What is the assurance that we have that God is going to send the fire? You know where I'm going. It's the gospel. Amen. It's the gospel. All along, Yahweh had been beating Baal on his own grounds. Yahweh had been dealing with Baal. Baal had come to say, oh, I am the God of the rainfall. This is my territory. God came and said, I am the God of the rainfall. This is not your territory. Baal had been saying, oh, I am the God of oil and grapes. Yahweh came and said, I am actually the God of the harvest. But there is one final time when God beats Baal on his own grounds again. And it's the key is in what Elijah said in 1 Kings 18 verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought. Or busy. Or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping. And must be awakened. The point Elijah was making was this. A God that has human attributes is not a kind of God that can send fire. But God comes, again, Baal is also a God like that. We know sometimes we hear about 
Baal actually sleeping with other, other gods. Baal dying. Baal going on a journey. But God comes and says, Baal may have human attributes and be unable to do anything. I will take on the human attributes myself and I'm going to send fire down. It's the incarnation. In the incarnation, the very thing, human attributes, that was a limitation to Baal, is the very instrument that God used to actually save our own souls. Upon the cross, God Jesus is saying to us that while your idols will tell you to slash yourself before they send fire, I have slashed myself on your behalf and I'm still going to send the fire for you. Jesus, before he he died and resurrected, said that when I go, I will send the spirit down. And he died. He resurrected and he ascended. He was coronated and upon his coronation in Acts chapter 2, he sent the spirit. The Bible says, so like tongues of fire upon their heads. Jesus is still coronated today. And that is the assurance we have that when we cry out unto him for revival, he is still able to send the spirit once again. He's still able to revive our lives. He's still able to revive the church. He's still able to revive this nation. for listening to the gospel in lagos we pray you've been blessed by this message to learn more about city church visit www.citychurchlagos.com city church love jesus love people love lagos